situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Please. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my going on everybody another edition of the past ball show uh, if you saw ESPN did a uh, collective list like they've done in other sports of the top 100 position actually baseball players of all time and the main point I'm going to get into really has little to do with ESPN's list in which I trust it was researched and they brought in a lot of different experts and historians to quantify all the different players that they had in the list. Number one, the issue I have is you can't ever put a collective list together that has both pitchers and hitters in it. It's like, to me, it's like having a a list of running backs and, uh, I don't know, goalies. Because you're essentially talking about two different sports. That's the difference in baseball between the pitcher and the hitter. They're essentially doing two completely different things. So, well, you could talk about it from a historical perspective, their dominance on the game, but it's very hard to be able to quantify what a pitcher does against what a hitter does. And the best way to handle that or address that is to have a separate list. Say, hey, these are the best pitchers to ever pitch in a game. And I, I, I think you could combine relievers. You could combine uh, you know, all types of of pitchers, whether they're pitchers that pitched six innings or pitchers that pitched in Old Haas Radborn's day when he won 310 games and 500-something starts and pitched 488 complete games. You know, you could do, you could do something like that. But uh, obviously, I'm going to draw the comparison to my old list, which I put in book form. At some point, I think I'm going to release it. A um, couple different kinks I want to work out in regards to my top 100 offensive position players of all time and how my list differs with ESPN. But before I do that, when you're putting together a list like this, I get it. You know, we're out on in the world of social media and where everybody has a chance to react and, you know, give their own honest opinion. This is how. I feel about this. I think this is garbage. I don't like this. I like this. And you hear about it all the time. And one of the common things that are brought up is the comparison between generations as it exists, not just in baseball, but the world of sports. It's most important because I think it's the easiest to do in baseball because baseball has been around for so many years. You're talking about the near 150 years, the more than 150 years that have existed in baseball. And it's very easy to talk about all the different generations and all the different idiosyncrasies and differences within the way baseball was played. The way baseball was played in 1866 was different than the way baseball was played in 1871. That was different than the way it was played in 1876. That was different the way it was played in 1883 and beyond. And after the century and after the American League became a prominent league within competition from the Federal League in 1914 and 1915. And then, of course, you had the difference between the live ball era and the dead ball era. And racism completely segregating baseball 
through 1947. And then baseball's, I don't know, tiptoeing through it, taking a little bit of extra time to make sure the game was fully integrated during the course of the 1950s. And you could talk about the difference in night baseball and expansion. And then the simple thing is analytics and numbers. And you look at that right now as it exists in a game of baseball, and you can see why there's a lot of advantages for your average baseball player that plays right now. Now, the play, baseball player that plays right now understands that if they get a good workout and a personal trainer and they're out on a gym working on their body, staying in the best possible shape and doing the amount of all year round practice as they do uh, now as opposed to 50 years ago or 60 years ago or even longer than that. And obviously the, the opportunity to look at each and every one of your at-bats, look at replays, look at what you just did. You know, Babe Ruth didn't get that opportunity. Uh, you know, Ross Barnes didn't get that opportunity. Now, not to say that it's any better or any worse, but in order to compile the most fair list of top anything, excuse me, especially as you're dealing with and going over the course of multiple generations. <coughs> thought I was going to get through without coughing, but yeah, I had to let it out. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to go through the course of multiple generations, you got to normalize it at some point. You have to say, all right, well, you know, Babe Ruth is better than Mike Trout, or Mike Trout is better than Babe Ruth, if that's the conversation you want to have. And it's just an example, many examples that you can make over the course of time. Hey, uh, Barry Bonds, you know, Melot. And you could say they were, those, they were similarly dominant players that you know, hit a ton of home runs. But is it really fair to compare one to the other? Could Mel Ott hit pitching as it was set up today? It would be a little bit difficult. Could Barry Bonds dominate the game back then without the knowledge? And obviously you're going you're gonna to maybe laugh if you're not a Barry Bonds fan. But you know, listen, if there's no steroids in 19... Uh, you know, 1939, then Barry Bonds doesn't you know become the all-time immortal player that that he that he does. You know, if he plays in that time frame, he doesn't hit all those home runs because there's no steroids to inject into his body. But you know, there's also not the technology that exists. You can't you can't say that Babe Ruth couldn't hit today's pitching because one of two things would have to happen: either you have to transplant Babe Ruth in a time machine, crank it up to 88 miles an hour and bring it into this generation when Babe Ruth would have the benefit of being able to see his own at-bats on replay, would be able to record and watch his own at-bats, would have the same analytics that all the players have today. He would have a personal trainer. He would probably be in better shape. Sure, he had some knowledge about the launch angle, but he would also have all the benefits of the technology that would exist today. Hey, a pitcher would strike him out. Well, you know what? Babe Ruth would also know what's coming because he'd be part of this generation and privy to the knowledge that all the players in this generation have. Or if you want to jump back and say Adam Adovino would have struck out Babe Ruth back in 1925, Adam Adovino wouldn't have had the movement 
on his pitches that he has right now. He wouldn't have the the, the technology and ability to <coughs> excuse me to do things with the baseball that he's doing or has been doing for the last decade. Because you you can't have both. You can't set it up to have your narrative go the way you want. If you hate baseball history, you hate baseball history. You could go out there, declare it. You could say, I hate baseball history. Or you could just try to dismiss it like it's not important, which is what some people are really trying to go out there and doing. Oh, you know, all the advantages that the players have right now, these players didn't have it. So therefore, they couldn't perform at this level. No. If you're going to compare a player from yesteryear to a player of right now, they're going to be normalized and on the same level. The player from yesteryear is either going to have all the technology and advantage and personal trainer and whatever supplements they're taking right now, or the player that you want to say is so much better right now, you drop them back 50, 60, 100 years, and all of a sudden, their brain's going to have to be scrambled. They're not going to know what video is. They're not going to be able to track their at-bats. They're not going to be able to study different features and idiosyncrasies that allow for them to perform at a higher level. GNC was not invented. There was no steroids and PEDs, which I tell you to this day, I'm still convinced that players are finding a way to get away with using them. Now, you, you look in, and I don't want to turn this into that kind of discussion, but obviously anything that's on your mind and you want to throw my way, please go ahead. But the issue that I have here is you can't take two different generations and penalize one because it doesn't have the advantages of the other. Or say one is going to be so superior because they're gifted with all of this when the prior generation was not given that. Either transplant the player from yesteryear to this year and say, hey, they would have done the same thing had they had all the technology and advantages. I mean, to say, oh man, Babe Ruth wasn't any good because he was the best player in a league that didn't have a lot of competition and there was no integration. Those are things that unfortunately Babe Ruth could not control. But if you put Babe Ruth in a generation with integrated players, he would have that same type of dominance. Yes, he'd have to adjust to what different pitchers were throwing in different generations. And you you may not believe that's possible. I don't know. I don't know what to really say about it because like I, I just think it's so easy to dismiss sports history. And and it, it feels good, sure. You know, you say, hey, baseball as it's played right now is the best that it's ever been. Well, it very well should be. It, it should be because it has all the advantages. It has everything that past generations have not had. But because of that, to say that, you know, Babe Ruth, and Babe Ruth's my best example, because it's very hard to talk about the 150 years of baseball history and say that there was a player that dominated its sport any better than the Babe. ESPN agrees with me with this. They got him ranked number one. You know, when I talk about my top 100 offensive position players of all time, Babe Ruth is number one. And I got to be honest, there were other players that I discussed, but it never came a point where anybody was challenging Babe Ruth for being number one. Now, I, I went 
strictly off of the offensive performances of the baseball players. So I didn't factor in defense. I used base running up to a point. If it was somebody like Ricky Henderson or Ty Cobb, you know, they were able to revolutionize the game in a way that they ran the bases. So that helped them from an offensive standpoint. But I didn't factor in defense. I didn't factor in, uh, um, I don't know, overall leadership. You know, things that Willie Mays would have done really well. Willie Mays moves up the overall baseball player list. And I think ESPN did a good job by ranking him number two. Because if I'm going to talk about best all-around player, Babe Ruth's you know, in it, kind of in a level of his own. Willie Mays, from an all-around standpoint, is probably one of the only players that could push it, that could actually make you think, hey, Ruth or Mays? Well, listen, Mays was an incredible defensive center fielder, covered a ton of ground, was the leader on the field, made that team so much better with all the different things that he did, not just hitting, so I could see that. But, you know, when I'm talking about just offense, I slide I slide Willie Mays all the way down to number eight. I slide him under Cobb, who I got as two. Ted Williams, three. Gehrig, four. Bonds, five. Hank Aaron, six. Rogers Hornsby, seven. And Rogers Hornsby in this particular list is all the way down at number 16. And I, I took out the pitchers. I actually revised the list without changing anything. I just simply eliminated the pitchers because <clears throat> that should be set up for a second list. But ESPN's top 10 amongst position players, Ruth, Mays, Aaron, Cobb, Williams, Gehrig, Mantle, Bonds, Musial, and Hannes Wagner. Now, one through eight were one through eight before pitchers started to get involved. So, Stan Musial was number 10, and Hannes Wagner was number 12, and then I'll go 11 through 20 real quick before I break into my own. Griffey, Trout, DiMaggio, Schmidt, Frank Robinson, Hornsby, Henderson, A-Rod, Clemente, Jeter. And once again, you look at somebody like Derek Jeter, and if you're talking about all-around ability, just leader on the field, with his great overall fame, Derek Jeter ranks as a top all-around player. He does, and I, I don't disagree with that. You know, a lot of people are pissed because they just don't like the Yankees or don't like Derek Jeter. Listen, I respect and understand Derek Jeter's significance in baseball history, but as an offensive player, I have him almost rounding out the top 100. I have him in the top 100. You know, 3,600 hits is a legitimate deal. To play the game for 20 years and to be a consistent year-in and year-out star like he was, I think it's top 100 material. I don't think it's top 20. But what you're factoring in is Derek Jeter, the leader, the champion, the winner. And all that does mean something. It's immeasurable, but it means something. So mine, all I have to do is look over and you know, if I had somebody here to move the camera... We could move it over to the section where I have all the pictures up of my top 20. And like I said, this is strictly offensive position players. But it's Ruth, Cobb, Williams, Gehrig, Bonds, followed by Aaron, Hornsby, Mays, Musial, Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson's another miss here, I think, from ESPN. Ranked 24th 
amongst position players. To me, Josh Gibson is top 10 as far as his dominance. Um, how he, he just basically, he drew crowds. He hit unbelievable home runs. And, you know, white America did everything to minimize his accomplishments. Now, I don't give you any bonus for that. But I think it's respect that should be given. Respect that's taken away because you don't have much video. Respect that's taken away because there's so many box scores that are missing amongst the Negro League statistics. And a great job, obviously, by uh, Sabre and baseball reference, sports reference for everything they've done to try to you know, recapture all these different baseball stats that have been lost. But you're still not going to be able to get all of them. You're still not going to be able to say Josh Gibson hit 863 home runs, which some people might say, estimate. You know, you think about the John Donaldson argument, which I brought up on his show. And John Donaldson, for those that don't know, was a dominant, dominant Negro Leagues pitcher that pitched in the early part of the 19th century. And the Negro Leagues, as far as getting their official credit for being a major league, didn't officially start until 1920. So that's like uh, Major League Baseball, a Major League Baseball star pitching in the 18, I'm sorry, playing in the 1860s. And then the National Association became a major league. It's disputed. It is a major league. It isn't a major league. And then the National League came in in 1876. Now, prior to that, there was baseball that was played. Prior to that, there were great players that did great things. Unfortunately, the statistics aren't there to back up one's argument when you want to say how dominant a particular player was. John Donaldson is the biggest victim to this because he was a dominant Negro Leagues pitcher in the decade of the 19-teens, from 1910 to 1920, he won a whole bunch of games, struck out a whole bunch of batters. When it was all said and done, he won probably over 400 games, struck out probably over 5,000 batters, but a lot of this data has not 100% been substantiated. Obviously, you're talking about competition. You play in a barnstorming game because you can't play in a 154-game season like Major League Baseball players can. Is that held against him? Is he not that good because he didn't have that advantage? And that's the similar argument that I make when we talk about Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson dominated a game like Babe Ruth. If Josh Gibson was on the same playing field as Babe Ruth, we may be talking about Ruth and Gibson being one and two as far as the top offensive position players to ever play. So I go 11 to 20, and I'll go through this real quick. Hannes Wagner, and Hannes Wagner ranks number 10 on the ESPN list, so we're on the same page there. So I go from there to Jimmy Fox, who I think ESPN forgot about the dominance of Jimmy Fox. They rank him 29. I got him 11. And then after that is Frank Robinson, who they acknowledge as 15. Mel Ott, who they rank as 42. I think he was a dominant offensive position player, a power hitter. Yes, he benefited from a short fence at the polo grounds where the Giants played. But similar to a Ross Barnes, who I speak about in my book. He dominated the game based off of the way it was played. And you take any player from then and bring them up to now, and you'd have to assume that they would adapt to the league's rules and not just do what they specialized in. That's why I got Mel Ott a little higher. 
After that, I got A-Rod. I got Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Albert Pujols, Oscar Charleston, who I don't think gets enough credit. They ranked him 37th on this list. And Tris Speaker, who I have as 20. ESPN has as 25. So it's really, you know, they acknowledge the same players I do. And I think they respect the dominance of the players that played in baseball. But my main point about this particular discussion, it's, yeah, it's all relative because you're talking about things that are never going to be on an even playing field. And I know some people, some millennials, some people from this generation want to turn it into a generational argument. They'd rather sit here and argue with their grandparents and argue with their great-grandparents and argue with their great-great-grandparents and say, hey, things were better in my lifetime. Well, as life has progressed and technology has gotten better, and socially, we've become better people. The generation that lives right now has it better than any other generation before. It doesn't mean that they are better. It doesn't mean that they're better people. It doesn't mean they're better at what they do. It doesn't mean they're better within a sport. Mike Trout's not the greatest baseball player to ever play just because he plays in his generation. And once again, the best way to compare a player that plays now to a player that plays then or a player that plays in the 1960s to a player that plays in the 1980s is to put everything on the same level playing field. Babe Ruth could not hit today's pitching because Babe Ruth never saw today's pitching. While I agree with that, I think it's a lousy and lazy argument. If, you're, if Babe Ruth was facing pitching today, Babe Ruth will be up to date with what he's going to expect from the pitching that's going up against him. He's not going to go into 2022 completely blind. He's not going to go 100 years and all of a sudden not know anything that's going on. That's the argument that you want to make, which I think is extremely lazy and short-sighted. Babe Ruth, if he was playing right now, would be able would have his tablet, he'd be able to track his at-bats, he would know all about the data and analytics the same way that every player that plays right now knows. He would be taking whatever supplements from GNC. He'd have a personal trainer. He might even be taking steroids. But Babe Ruth's dominance then should be compared to his to dominance of players now without saying that any particular generation has an advantage. If it doesn't have the advantage, say, all right, well, if Mike Trout won, played in 1923... When Babe Ruth played, he'd be playing against all white players. He'd be playing against pitchers that wouldn't have anywhere near the arsenal and would not throw as hard as they do now. He wouldn't have any of the advantages that he has right now. So you take all those advantages away. And as does that diminish how good of a player Mike Trout would be? If he played in 1923, because he's not taking he's not taking all the stuff with him. He's not Christopher Lloyd. He's not Michael J. Fox. He's not getting into DeLorean and just going into a random time with all the knowledge that he has right now. And maybe Back to the Future, the movie, was the problem. Maybe it makes everybody think that that's all he could do is just jump into the DeLorean, 
crank it up to 88 miles an hour and just go into any generation with all the knowledge and advantages that you have in a generation that you're living in. That's a little bit silly. It doesn't happen that way. Brain scramble. You're going to lose a lot of your knowledge. You're not going to know what the internet is. And how would you live without the internet? Once again, if you want to compare players through past generations, the best thing you could do is normalize it, saying, all right, this is the best of what they had right then against the best of what we had right now. And if player A played in, in, in generation B, they'd all be on the same playing field. Whether one did or didn't, because that's not their fault. Roger Connor, it's not his fault <clears throat> that home runs weren't hit at the level that they were when Babe Ruth came into the game. He was an all-time home run champion. Nobody had hit any more home runs in a career than Roger Connor until Babe Ruth best passed it. He didn't have the knowledge that we had, you know, nowadays, let alone back then, that hey. Somebody was going to come and start lifting the ball over the fence, and then there was going to be a live ball generation. So why penalize him for it? Point number two, I want to jump into basketball for a second because we're getting close to the NBA trading deadline. And I, I think there's going to be some movement. You can see some teams. We've, I've spoken a little bit about the Cleveland Cavaliers, how I think they really are a significant move away from thrusting themselves into the Eastern Conference and competition. You know, I want to always want to ask about the mindset of a given player that's not playing. And I, one, of, one of the comparisons I always like to jump uh, and uh, compare with is the year that Le'Veon Bell sat out and didn't play for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it's hard to get into somebody and try to figure out what they're thinking, what their minds saying, you know, you could ask Le'Veon Bell now, all these years later, do you think it was the best decision for you? Did that impact you at all? And his answer would be his answer. Only he knows the answer to that. But the reason I bring that up is because, you know, let's say something could have been worked out in the middle of the season where another team would say, hey, Le'Veon Bell hasn't played eight games. Let's make a deal with the Pittsburgh Steelers Let's bring in the best running back in the NFL, and he was at that point the best all-purpose running back, the best runner. He was a good pass catcher. He was a significant offensive weapon. And let's say the Kansas City Chiefs wanted to trade for him. The Dallas Cowboys wanted to trade for him. Obviously, I'm just throwing out random team names. Does Le'Veon Bell, number one, is he interested enough in playing that year, or did he check himself out for the entire year? And the reason I bring this up is because I'm thinking of Ben Simmons in the same way. Certainly don't agree with his decision not to play basketball this year. That bothers me. The guy to be compensated as much as he is over the course of a long-term contract. And for him to have the balls, the gall, the audacity to choose not to play, I don't care what his issue is. I don't care if it's mental health related. I don't care if... It's the fact that he doesn't like his teammates, he doesn't like his coach, he doesn't like his general manager. None of that is relevant. He quit on his team. 
And as the trading deadline is coming close to the NBA, you're going to hear a lot of discussion about the possibility of Ben Simmons being moved in a trade. A lot of it's going to come from Philadelphia and their general manager, Daryl Morey. He wants, obviously, to get the, give the best perception to the audience, to the media, to the general public, that Ben Simmons is a sought-after commodity. And maybe he is. Maybe there are teams that are inquiring about Ben Simmons. But if there are, maybe it's the Brooklyn Nets, maybe it's the Cleveland Cavaliers, maybe it's the Portland Trailblazers. And if any of these teams are interested in Ben Simmons, do they believe enough that Ben Simmons will play basketball this year? Is it a Philadelphia 76ers team thing? Is it a centric to the city of Philadelphia where he just doesn't want to play basketball? Because the last thing I'd want to do is if I'm any team, I won't want to go out there and trade assets for a player that doesn't want to play. And obviously from the 76ers standpoint, man, they would love to get a significant basketball player back in exchange for Ben Simmons. They'd like to get somebody similar to his skill set and go out there and make a run for an NBA championship. That would best suit the Philadelphia 76ers. But the other element is, what, what is the other team getting back? Is there anybody in the NBA that's excited about a potential Ben Simmons trade? Because you could talk about watering it down and lowering your demands, which Maury, as the general manager of the 76ers, has made it clear he's not willing or interested in doing. And then you talk about how much Ben Simmons wants to play basketball. And if he's got a problem with being a leader or being somebody that's trusted and depended on in crunch time to make a big play, then what team is going to want that? And that's why I believe that there's a lot when it comes to the propaganda that the general manager and the organization have to put out there to make it seem like Ben Simmons is a more wanted commodity than he really is. And I, I can't imagine a team saying, hey, all right, let's give up the equatable assets. And they're looking at Ben Simmons like this was two years ago. And give the 76ers what they legitimately want in a trade. And I'd say, and this is my opinion, I, I say we're looking at about a less than 40% chance that Ben Simmons is moved by the trading deadline. And you have to ask, hey, is he in good enough shape to contribute to the team that he's traded for right now? Now, if the 76ers want to make a move, let's say for a player that's on a team that's not going to make the playoffs, and that team looks at Ben Simmons and says, this is an asset that we could control for a number of years and have as a legitimate part of our team while we are getting better then that actually makes a little bit of sense. Daryl Morey was the general manager of the Houston Rockets. And if I'm thinking about the Houston Rockets getting better over the next series of years, they got a player that you've heard me rant about that's on their bench, that's the best player on their team that would give themselves a better chance of competing for a playoff spot if he was not voluntarily sitting on the sidelines and not playing. And that's John Wall. A John Wall for Ben Simmons trade, if you could work it out from a financial standpoint, because there obviously would have to be other moving pieces, 
and maybe you'd have to involve a third team. But there's a deal that could work for everybody. Now, I don't know about the mix with John Wall and some of the players for the 76ers, Tobias Harris and, uh, you know, you know Maxie and some of the other stars that they have there, especially from the guard positions. You know, they, they've got had guys that have stepped up with Simmons not there. Does John Wall make him better or worse? I don't know. But from a star standpoint, you put Wall in there with Joel Embiid, and that's a team that I think could win the Eastern Conference and make it to the NBA Finals. From the Rockets' perspective, they don't need anything from Ben Simmons. In fact, Ben Simmons could uh, you know, take his pocketbook and go back home like he's been doing this whole season for the 76ers because the Rockets don't want to win. I've said before that the Rockets don't want to win. They're tanking. They want to get the number one overall pick next year. The NBA allows them to do it, so they might as well just declare what it is that they're trying to do. But if they made a trade for Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons can say, hey, I don't want to play for the Rockets either. The Rockets can say, well, I don't care. We don't need you to play for us. But if Ben Simmons is traded to a competitor, a team that's competing and is trying to get into playoffs this year, the Cavaliers, potentially the Trailblazers, but the Brooklyn Nets, certainly. And obviously a lot has been made about how happy James Harden is or how happy he's not. And he's probably going to move as a free agent this year. That means he's not going to be coming back. So maybe it makes sense for the Nets to move on and make a trade. Maybe. But if you're the Nets, do you want Ben Simmons? Do you want Ben Simmons not knowing whether he's even going to suit up for you? Because, uh, you know, addition by subtraction, by getting rid of James Harden, even though Harden hasn't been, you know, the Harden of, you know, three years ago, two years ago, three years ago, you know, it's not really good addition by subtraction. So I don't like that from the Nets perspective. But if you're going to move Ben Simmons, you know, I'd look to move him to a team that's not competing this year. A team that's not looking at the playoffs as a, a reasonable objective. Maybe Detroit, as they're trying to find their own cohesion, put him with a Cade Cunningham. Yeah, that might be a good look over there. I don't know. But to imagine him going from the 76ers, a legitimate finals contending team of last year, which he clearly doesn't want to play for, to another playoff team, I don't, know, I don't know if it makes sense for anybody to do that. This is John Pielli here. Passball Show is brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, if you want to check out Two Ways, Ways is spelled with a Z, two, the number two, and it's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. You can find out where Karen and Jenny are going to be setting up this week. Um, Passball Show is also brought to you by JohnPielli.com. If you check out the site, we're going through some modifications. We're going to have a lot more features in the site and things to look at and look over over the course of the next year. And, of course, St. Aloysius Church, located in Jackson, New Jersey. Um, you can obviously check their site through staloysiuschurch.org. We'll be back with you next week. Um, obviously, not that much going on in the world of sports. Baseball's in a lockout. You have the... Uh, obviously, the Pro Bowl coming this week. Not really that excited, but I think of the Pro Bowl, and sadly, I think of the day Kobe Bryant died, which I know you know a lot of people in this country, his lives changed forever, unexpected. You know, Kobe's essentially my age, 
Yeah, certainly one of those moments where you look back on, especially when it comes to athletes, you sort of remember where you were when you found out. And that was, I was watching the NFL broadcast on ESPN at the Pro Bowl. And it took you know the announcers a little while to get to it. I'm like, what, who are they talking about? Obviously, somebody died. What happened? And obviously, just an awful, awful, awful situation with one of the greats in the history of the NBA dying so unexpectedly in an accident. On that note, God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.